Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. We're running a little late today because I'm very dedicated to my job. Sure. And I was there about an hour and a half late uh, tonight. Uh, It's just popping off. First one there, last one gone. That's what I say. The second part might have been true today. No, actually, it definitely wasn't. Oh, okay. Um, But yeah, I don't think I've ever been the first person there. There are people who show up. Uh, real early uh, at my job, but you know they also fucking leave early. Fucking brown nosers. <laughs> I uh, haven't thought of that term in yeah. many many years. But anyway, okay. um, we got a lot of stuff to get to, and uh, yeah, but we had to, like we we're running late because we do these the same night usually that we do mm. the regular episode. And I was running so late, and we have a guest coming for the regular episode, and I was thinking, like, what if we just skip the movie journal? But then I realized that it'll be another two weeks until we can do another movie journal. It really will have, uh, because we're not doing one next week. So we have to do this today. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. We have to do this. That's fine. Okay. Uh, So I'm going to start off with what I watched, and um, you can already read my review about com. but uh, recently (laughs) remastered and re-released in select theaters is the 1982 film... The Return of Martin Guerre, mm. uh, directed by Daniel Vigne, I think is his name. Okay. Um, and it's, uh, I guess, apparently loosely based on a, on a on a true story from the the seventeen um, hundred. Does that sound right? Maybe. Sure. Um, but uh, based on the image that you posted on your review, uh, I assume that's the era. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you've got this small French you know, rural agricultural town. Mm-hmm. And you got this dude, Martin Guerre and he gets, yeah. he gets, uh, he gets married. He's has trouble having kids. They finally have a kid, but his marriage is troubled. The one day he just up and disappears. He's gone okay. for 10 years, 10 years later, Gerard Depardieu comes into town and he goes, guess what, everybody? It's me, Martin. I'm yeah. back. <laughs> and he seems to know everything. And, uh, and, and people like <laughs> are a little bit like, Oh, you look, bigger but he's like i've been at war you know i'm uh, uh anyway and he and he and he uh moves back in with his, martin gare's wife um and eventually some people come through and they're like hey i know you you're i think pincet or something was the name okay. and he was like no i'm not i'm martin gare anyway uh He's I, I really hope these are the lines. <laughs> yeah. No, not. <laughs> and I, I hope uh, he delivered it that way. Um, so what I'm saying, I, I feel like if this movie were executed in the way you would expect, the things that I'd be saying would be a spoiler. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you're giving away that he's not Martin Gare. Mm-hmm. The movie does not really the movie does not really uh, spend a lot of time leading you down that path. Like no. it doesn't mess with that, that, uh, it's not a red herring. What is it? It's a, anyway, um, there, uh, there's a term for what, it, yeah, what yeah. that is. Uh, it, so I, and, and by doing that, by, by sort of without ever uh, until at a certain point actually coming out and saying, but for a long time, never coming out and saying it still lets you know, it still seems clear this is not Martin Gare, mm-hmm. but the the interesting thing is he and Martin Gare's wife, played by uh, Natalie Bay, is her name. Um, they they truly fall in love. He comes mm-hmm. it's years before he starts having to defend himself, and people start accusing him. They truly fall in love. They have more children. Uh, he 
is much well he's much better liked in the town than martin yeah. garrett was like martin garrett like shrugged off his 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 work in the fields and stuff and so like he's kind of worked his way back into this town and then it ends up the the sort of like the last act is a sort of i guess you'd call it a courtroom courtroom drama oh okay. courtrooms don't look the way they did right <laughs> yeah now, sure you know it, they've it, got it, the guillotine in the courtroom <laughs> sure um and uh yeah it's a really fascinating movie and i've, I've really gotten into in, in recent years uh and I, I talked about this someone recently on the podcast uh, on the movie journal i think uh younger gerard depardieu mm-hmm. uh man he i mean he i still think he's a good actor but he was great uh, and beyond that he just has a very specific type of charisma um older younger like he just um he just seems like likable he seems like the life of the party even if he's playing like a total cat or whatever he just seems like a guy that you want to get to know often is yeah 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 um but at this i talked recently about get out your handkerchiefs a couple years ago i watched a couple of maurice pilab movies uh with gerard depardieu uh, under the son of satan and my favorite of that of this bunch of young young gerard depardieu movies is lulu which is also a movie mm-hmm. with a young isabel Huppert. Mm-hmm. that's a great everyone should check out lulu it's a really great movie uh and return of martin Gare is i i think what's really fascinating so I, I talk about what a great actor he is and that's important because in a sense the return of martin Gare is a movie about acting mm-hmm. he's pretending to be Martin Garrett this entire time, you know, it's, uh, you could, you could, you could definitely write a, 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 a paper about the sort of meta textual, yeah. <laughs> uh, qualities of, of a great actor playing someone who is essentially a great actor. Uh, so yeah, I would definitely check that one out if you get a chance. Next up is a documentary that I had, I, I missed it at Sundance but I heard a lot of uh, good things about it. I know um, film critic Amy, Amy Tobin, who's one of my favorite uh, film critics, really loved this movie, Out of Sundance. And it's a Macedonian documentary called Honeyland. Okay. And uh, it basically follows two neighboring, I guess you'd call them farms. One's a bigger farm. One is just this older woman who <laughs> is taking care of her very ailing mother, who's probably in her late 80s or something. And um, she keeps up her life and her home and stuff by uh, being a beekeeper, mm-hmm. essentially. She has different nests around her uh, her property, and she goes out and collects the, the honey and sells it. At, it goes into town and sells it at a market. And then you've got next door, you've got a new family who have taken over a farm. They're also raising bees, but also they have a bunch of cattle yeah. and, and, and some other things. And... Uh, basically you've got, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, Some of the best documentaries are things that just, when documentary, I think when documentarians just sort of like stumble into something that ends up being great and know to get out of the way of it. Yeah. The, the, this movie at no point does it sort of force the viewer down a certain narrative, Mm -hmm. you know, it just sort of lets things unfold and you start to see the differences between this woman who is, this has been, uh, this older woman, this has been her way of life and her way of collecting bees no. for a long time. And then you've got these younger farmers who just like moved into the place and, uh, are, are sort of like, you can see them maybe cutting corners with, mm. w- with how they take care of their bees in order to like get more profit 
out of it now, but then it ends up hurting in future seasons or, or because the bees don't know which farmer they belong to. Right. There sort of hurts her bees uh, and her honey as well. And so you like, there's a part of you that's like, Oh, these young upstarts that are greedy. They're fucking up the system of the agriculture, but also like these people are broke and they're kind of desperate at the same time. You know, yeah. a part of you doesn't want to blame them for like, they've got, you know, the, the sort of, the 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 big wig guy they sell because she goes into town to sell her honey they've mm-hmm. got this guy who is like a honey middleman who comes and picks up yeah. and he's pressuring them to like no uh what's the harvest more harvest more when they should be like leaving some mm-hmm. for later in the season and like you're mad at them you're mad at him but also you understand um it, it's uh it, it it's it's an incredible amount of access. They clearly, the, t- the two directors were named Lubomir Stefanov and Tamara Kotevska clearly spent a lot of time with these families, especially with the older woman, because the amount of access they get, um, is, is really stunning. Um, and, and the amount of unguarded stuff they get when they're in the close quarters in this small, you know, this woman doesn't live in a big house. She has like a two room, like stone house in the middle of her honey farm. Um, and, uh, it, I don't want to give away much of where the story, not that it's that much of a story, but where the movie goes, but it's just a really powerful look at a way of life. You probably don't consider and uh, a sort of reminder that the good parts and bad parts of humanity are to be found everywhere, even in places you haven't considered or, right. or, or been aware of. And then next up, um, I don't know if you remember, just like, like probably on the last movie journal maybe the one before I talked about a 1968 documentary called The Queen mm-hmm. about the uh, drag uh, competition uh, so then I watched 1990's Paris is Burning yes which, which is that one I've heard of yes the, yeah and rightfully so it's uh, it's phenomenal mm-hmm. um But it's weird watching it back to back in that order. You see, at the end of the Queen, you see Crystal Labeja is and her friend. uh, Now I can't remember her name. Lottie, I can't remember. Are like, let's start our own thing, and they did. And now here you fast forward more than twenty years, and you see this entire culture that has sprung up around the House of Labeja and all these other houses of you know they're like these these drag queens that perform and compete in these in these balls they call them uh and they each one belongs to a different house like they're a team like they're a drag team um and so many of them are living hand to mouth or partially homeless or yeah. a lot of them uh a lot of this movie is very fun because you see them at their parties and, mm-hmm. and and dressed up and stuff like that but a lot of it is also very harrowing because you see how um that many of them are are very poor because they're you know a lot of and that's it's true to this day that uh, I mean I, I don't want to get too like into topical stuff but like we have a homeless problem in the country but we have a homeless problem in Los Angeles in particular and one thing I've learned from my my wife used to work at a few different jobs with the homeless population one thing I've learned in Los Angeles and probably all over the country is that um, when you're talking about homelessness homelessness as an issue to a a pretty sizable extent or a not insignificant portion of the time. You're also talking about LGBT issues because mm. there are so many people who get kicked out of home, sure. out of their homes, don't have a place to, to stay and end up uh, on the streets. And that's certainly something you see in Paris is burning. You see them turn to, to, uh, sex work. Um, mm. uh, and, uh, 
the dangers that 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 poses. I don't want to get too much into that, but most of the time it's most of the movie is very fun because I think it's getting across what these balls mean to people and the way that Jenny Livingston, the director, um, uh, I think really interestingly frames it is as a sort of like a glossary in a sense, because there are so many terms of art that they use, mm-hmm. some of which like throwing shade have worked their way into the, into the culture. And then there are other, other ones that come up and each sort of chapter of the movie is titled by one of these like slang terms that are, mm-hmm. that, that are used, you know, people didn't outside of this community. Most people didn't know in, 1989 or whatever what throwing shade meant oh, okay. now yeah. we know yeah. you know that that term has i think over the past decade or so uh worked its way into the mainstream but um uh yeah it's a really fascinating uh, uh movie i'm really glad that i finally saw it like you like you like you said i i had heard of it before uh and it's uh, like like the queen and like return of martin Guerre, it's been uh restored and is back in in theaters uh um hopefully it's coming to your town if not i'm sure that this is just a preamble to a disc. I would assume so. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. So what did you watch this over the past couple weeks? I watched, uh, Xavier Bergen's documentary horror noir, a history of black oh. horror. Um, it is available, I believe exclusively on shutter. Um, the streaming service dedicated to horror. Um, I wanted, yeah. Um, how long is it? It's, it's like, it's like just over 80 minutes. Oh, okay. So, uh, and therein, I think, is part of the problem. Yeah, I was like, this should be a miniseries. When I read about what it was, I was like, this this could be, and it's on yeah. a streaming service. Like, why not do a six hour miniseries? That's that's absolutely my thought. Like, it's it's somewhat in it's it, okay. Let's put it this way: it has ambitions of being in depth. Mm-hmm. All right, it goes all the way back to the silent era, understandably so talk a lot about birth of a nation various other things and the fact that they that they went that far back and then also talked about like certain black filmmakers of like the 1930s um that like honestly one of the guys from uh amos and andy mm. was actually you know on that show he was a, played with this comedic character in actuality he was a he was a pioneering director you know which is that's so fascinating and so they they're interview there's no narration they're interviewing you know academics and filmmakers and actors um that and and they only interview uh uh, african-american uh contributors which i think is a good a good call because even though i know that there are plenty of white academics that find this fascinating it's like they want it to be like from this perspective which i can respect um but the and it is interesting you know, you definitely come away from it being like, there. Okay, there, there are some movies here that I want to see, um, but it does. It feels like it kind of skims the surface. I feel like, yeah, you turn this into a six-part miniseries. Each one could be an hour. Each one could be two hours. You could spend easily an hour to two hours hmm. on the silent era alone. Okay, and then. And just essentially, like for every twenty or thirty years, you could spend one ep- one episode on it, and I think it would be really interesting because, and I think it would absolutely bear it out. Um, and it's just, uh, it's unfortunate. It's it is thoroughly interesting, but more than anything, I see it as uh, a, a sort of a primer. Uh, for something deeper, but mm-hmm. the, the, the deeper thing doesn't exist. Uh, we, ex- I'm, I mean, I'm sure that there have been books written about it, but as far as this type of thing, like 
it's not going to be as effective because a book isn't going to be as effective because here you can actually show clips from those movies and you can, so that you, the viewer has an, a deeper idea of what you're talking about. And so it really is, uh, it was a bummer. I really wanted more out of it to repeat still interesting. The people that are contributing are often very entertaining, but like, for example, um, obviously they talk a lot about night of the living dead. Mm. Makes sense. Dwayne Jones' character is is uh, seen as sort of this pioneer. This yeah, I use the word already, but this uh, pioneer in the world of black horror or, or depictions of black characters in, in horror. Um, <clears throat> but what's interesting is that even though Ken uh, Foray was uh, uh, was one of the people they interviewed, and he played a an important role in Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really touch on Dawn of the Dead that much, despite the fact that that character hmm. is a very important character. And then in Day of the Dead, uh, there's a, a, a black character there as well. Um, and again, it's not it's not merely tokenism. It's not merely like, well, the, oh, well, they have a black character. It's like it's a it's a primary role. And especially because one of the things they talk about in, is the, the magical Negro and the idea of the, okay. the, the, the black characters that in, in the most patronizing way just seem so much wiser than the rest of us. And the character in day of the dead, I think he's very well played by, I think his name is Terry Alexander. Um, is that right? It's Terry something. Anyway, uh, the character is given sort of, a, sort of a, <clears throat> maybe sort of a West Indian accent, but it also kind of sounds a little bit Jamaican, uh, Jamaican at okay. times. Um, he says stuff like Mon. Yeah. Uh, and then he's the one that often pontificates about why this is happening. And it gives him, and it doesn't undercut that. It doesn't say that, like he's just stupidly philosophical. It's suggesting that there might be something to what he's saying. So even in, even George Romero, who would pioneer this would also kind of give into, into tra- yeah. some of the traps to me. And it's like, and they don't even, touch on that and i feel like if they had spent you could you it, let's in this fictional miniseries uh that you and i've concocted you could do genuinely an entire episode solely about zombie movies yeah. um the imagery with uh, contained within the idea of blacks as survivors uh or not like it really it's it's a tease and it's and it's such a well done tease that for a moment you forget that that's all it is. But then the more you think about it, it's like, I want, I definitely want more. So I should say, you said this thing I've concocted. This is coming from, I had a conversation with our friend, Aaron Newworth about this movie, which I think we, it was, it was months ago. So I think we talked about the same thing. So I don't want to take credit. He might've been the one who said this should have been a mini mini series. I just want to give the credit out there. I mean, I can't remember. I mean, my takeaway was like, this was it's I looked at it's 83 minutes and I was like, well, the book l- it's based on. OK, because it was a book first is 296 pages. OK, that's short ish. Still short, short book. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, maybe the lettering's not very big. Um, but what I will say is like, if nothing else. Movies are 120 minutes like I mean, they can be shorter, they can be longer, but on average, they come to about two hours. And I recognize that as somewhat academic documentary, you're you might want to keep that a little bit shorter. But at the same time, like go as far, go as deep as you need to. And in this case, I think they need to make a series out of it. But also, if you're making a movie, go ahead and make the movie. Nobody's requiring it to be shorter. And you could absolutely I mean, that's 30 plus more minutes of material that they could have explored. And it's, it is a, it's a bummer. They talk about Candyman. 
They sure do. Okay. And they interview, and that's the thing is like they interview Tony Todd as they should, and they talk about Candyman. They also talk about how Candyman actually falls into some some previous uh, problematic material, yeah. but that actually they kind of rectified in the sequels. They play up the sequels. Oh, really? But then again, talking about certain things. If you had more time, like, I just want to hear what all of these people have to say about everything. Tony Todd played the Dwayne Jones character oh, in the Tom right. Savini Night of the Living Dead remake. Yeah. And I would like to hear, and cer- he certainly has opinions about Dwayne Jones uh, and, and his performance, but I would have liked to hear, like, what can he bring to yeah. it? So it's just, it's it's frustrating. I, I, I applaud their making of it. I applaud Sh- uh, Shudder for realizing, like, hey, if we're going to celebrate horror, we need to also study it a little bit. So that's all well and good, but I just yeah. feel like you could have done it. It does seem like a cool service. I'm not a subscriber, but uh, it is. It seems yeah. Like they have cool stuff. All right. So moving on. Speaking of horror, this is more of a thriller movie. I watched Deion Taylor's The Intruder. Okay. Um, Which looked interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, and I, this is exactly the kind of movie that I like. Um, it's uh, so Michael Ely and Megan Good play and upwardly mobile young uh black san francisco couple who decide they want to start a family he's just been promoted into this great new job they're going to buy this house in napa Mm -hmm. and move there and live in napa uh uh, full-time and so they buy it from a very nice uh uh, friendly widower played by dennis quaid Mm -hmm. and they move in and then he won't leave them alone he keeps showing up He'll just suddenly be mowing their lawn. Uh, and then, of course, obviously, it gets more and more sinister. And, um, yes, the movie, Dennis Quaid is, yeah, chewing, chewing the scenery is something you said off the mic. Um, that's exactly what he's doing. Uh, the movie's very arch. And, yes, I loved every minute of it. It's exactly the movie that I that I wanted it to be. It's 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 got the stuff that's, like, it's just, to me, I think if you're not willing to give yourself over to it, yeah, you might laugh at it, and I think that's uh, unfair. I think let them be what it is because I think yeah. it's it's just this side of being too much, you yeah. know. The uh, occasionally, you know, the the shots where like the lightning strikes and you realize like Dennis Quaid is standing right outside the window that you didn't realize. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, it could be funny if you aren't willing to take the movie seriously, but I think it absolutely works. Dennis Quaid's performance is is is, is spot on. My, Michael Ely, I've always liked um, Megan Good. I don't know as much of her work, but she's also very good. Um, and also, the movie is. Uh, I think um, you know we've talked about how often. Uh, cultural uh, anxieties or hot button topics mm-hmm. sort of bubble up into the genre films. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is clearly about, and like I, I mentioned, upwardly mobile black couple. This is about yeah. the, the anxiety, I think, of being a person of color, having earned a lifestyle that you maybe didn't come from. Yeah. And then getting there and realizing the people who have been there for generations don't necessarily want you there or want you there only on their terms. That was the first, I haven't seen the film and the first place my mind went was this idea. It's like you have this white guy who for all intents and purposes is super nice and total and, and again, seemingly totally willing to just pass it along and be like, Hey, my time with this house is over. It's all yours. But then this kind of feeling of like, still retaining a sense of entitlement. Right. Like, yeah, it's let like, me, let me like, grass get along a little right. Like, like, 
well, I, you still need to run it my way. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it too. It's just like, yeah, but it's not yours anymore. It's like, well, it's always kind of mine, you know? Right. And I was actually thinking about oddly enough in terms of presidents, uh, I was thinking about like, you've got like this good old boy. And by the way, Dennis Quaid has played a, a, uh, George W. Bush type in American dreams. Oh, um, right. but anyway, so, uh, he also played Bill Clinton in the special relationship. Um, which that one I actually saw. Uh, I didn't, and I wanted to because it's like it's Michael like Sheen Michael Sheen's like Tony, Tony Blair trilogy. Blair. He's done it three times. Yeah, um, but anyway, right. so uh, so this idea Michael that like, Sheen seems cool, by the way. I think he is he cool. Seems like a cool guy. He still has my one of my favorite things. I mean, it's not his. He he performed it, but uh, in Thirty Rock, it's the kind of thing you don't even think about. Where his oh, character's name, name is Wesley Snipes. I he love goes, that. And he goes, that's weird. He goes, no, it's weird that the actor's name is Wesley Snipes. (laughs) If you were to look at him and look at me and say, which one's name is Wesley Snipes? (laughs) He's absolutely right. Like, uh, but yeah. And so the idea that this like good old country boy who, who just seems to mean, well, it's like, here you go. It's up to, I'm handing it over to you. Nice, you know, articulate and Joe Biden's words, uh, upscale Uh black. Yeah, I know black people. And then just like, uh, okay, uh, I see what you're doing. I'm not super thrilled with it. So I would like it back, uh, in some capacity. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I was, I was bummed that it Um, got so critically lambasted and you know what? It did not deter me at all. I still plan on seeing it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, some, some critics, I think just, uh, I, I think there's maybe we've had a couple decades now of there being too much irony and certain people just don't know how to enjoy things yeah. without, uh, you know, looking down their nose at them maybe. And I um, wonder if it goes and back. I, I'm the most pretentious asshole in the room of, well, there's two of us in the room, but in, in most rooms, I'm the most pretentious That's asshole probably, in the room. Yeah. Um, here, so who am I to, it's pretty to close. Judge? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But what I will say is that, like, uh, all right, I'm going to I'm going to stroke us both here a little bit, uh, which is to say that, like, I think you and I probably as a function of conversations with one another came to a conclusion several years ago at this point that melodrama is not a dirty word. And histrionic and, you know, histrionics and hyperbole are not inherently wrong or bad. And when I saw the trailer for The Intruder, I was like, well, it's definitely that. Yeah. But that's okay. If that's, you know, if you let it be okay, like you said, if you just give yourself over to it, then you can enjoy it. But I think there are still a lot of people out there that like, this is so over the top. So, you know, he's chewing the scenery. It's like, yeah, that's what he's doing. So now that you know that, what are you going to do about it? I've always had a soft spot for these kind of thrillers. Yeah. I think you remember I loved domestic disturbance with uh, John Travolta. I and did Vince too. Vaughn and, and Steve Buscemi. Briefly Steve Buscemi. Briefly. Um, yeah. Do you remember? I can't remember what talk show he was on where Steve Buscemi was promoting. Was, I think it was Conan and the clip they showed was his death. And he didn't know that's what the clip <laughs> yeah. was going to be. And he just starts laughing. like, well, I guess, you know, I'm not in it the whole time. <laughs> um, <laughs> to me, then, it's not that different than misery. I mean, Kathy Bates okay. is over the top in misery. Yeah. yeah. Um, another movie this reminded me of because it's another movie that has a lot of racial things going on. Although this one's much more dangerous and difficult is Neil Butte's Lakeview Terrace, which I never actually saw. It's I, but I, I wanted to, um, I, I, I really loved Lakeview Terrace, but yeah. it's, uh, cause that's turning things on its ear where it's yeah. a nice neighborhood, but it's a nice black neighborhood. Right. And then a mixed race couple, moves in yeah. white man, black woman, and Samuel Jackson is the corrupt black cop. Yeah. 
doesn't like this white man yeah. with the black. It's a, it's a completely like different angle on this sort of thing that you normally see and potentially really problematic coming from a, but it's, uh, coming from a provocateur white director. Yeah, sure. I think that's, that is the issue, but honestly it's not unheard of there. There, like, I remember there, there are some actors, some like African American actors who are like my leading lady will not be white. Like, cause yeah, I don't want to give the wrong impression. And I do know that like, what was it? Yeah, I, I was it. hearing somebody, I was hearing like a commentator, like I actually a fairly like liberal commentator. I don't remember who it was, but he was Afri- African American. No, it was, a, it was a woman. And she said like, she's like, she was talking about the, the, this desire, which is an understandable one to like, like stick to your own kind. And he says, and she said like, we're doing it as well. Not, it's not yeah. just white people, but I think, it's. I mean, but if the story we came, had two white guys having this conversation, right. if but the I've story learned, like, came from uh, an African American director, it would feel more yeah, genuine. Neil wrote it, but I also I, I, my understanding is again we're two white guys. Who knows what we understand or don't? But I think you know shit ain't equal in the in the world, sure. and so for a for a white person to be romantically involved with a person of color. Why, while it might make that white person seem woke or whatever, sure, it actually could be the exact opposite from the from people of color's point of view. It could sure. be seen as I don't know, selling out or something like that. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. And so I think when you see when you see black actors, like I think it came up with Eric LaSalle on ER. Right, they tried yeah. to pair it. They they wanted to pair him up with one of the white actresses, and he protested. No. Um, I don't think it's a racist. I only want to be with black people thing. I think it's because that's it's a, it's an image that means different things to different people. Yeah, I don't mean to imply that it's so that it's. Trust. I don't mean to imply that it's like a one to one comparison or anything like that. But also, I do know that, like for example, uh, oddly enough, in my in my old church, my wife and I were part of like the pre-marriage counseling team, essentially letting people know like, Hey, uh, yeah, it's perfectly okay to fight. It's not the end of the world, which I'm still learning, uh, incidentally, but, um, our, ch- you preach. our church was, uh, 60% Korean. And so we became, and most of the couples, exactly that we, 60%. Yeah, was Florida, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, they're very precise people. Um, <laughs> sorry. No. Here's the thing. It, it's weird that I, like, I shouldn't feel comfortable making those jokes, except the people that we canceled made those jokes oh, all okay. the time. And so like, I'm not a lot, I'm not really allowed to, right, yeah. but it doesn't, I just take it as such a given. But anyway, um, <clears throat> But I, I did learn a lot about Korean culture, and one of the, and one of the things is like if your parents, you know, if you're first generation American, your parents came from Korea, like you damn well marry another Korean, uh, mm-hmm. like and there was and like there was a, a a woman who wound up she like broke up with her her white boyfriend because she was getting such pressure from her parents. Wow. And so it's not to again it's not to say it's a one to one comparison. There is the idea of like selling out versus various other things. Um you know on one hand it could be from a white perspective it could be seen as self congratulatory um and maybe even a little patronizing. And on the other hand like oh, you sure. said there's a selling out uh and just this idea of like well we can't really trust what uh, this other type of person whatever it is. But I do think that like the story is worth from Lakeview as of Lakeview Terrace is definitely worth telling whether or not Neil Butte should be the one telling it is maybe I, the, I, the bigger issue. And here. I still think it's a good movie, but I'm um, sure it is. Yeah. All right. That's not the movie we're here yeah, to talk yeah. about. So, uh, yes, it's been two weeks since we did a BP movie journal and I only have seven movies total. Okay. 
you know, I like to I like to try and aim for an average of a movie a day. I never quite get there. But I'm letting myself off the hook here because okay. one of the movies that I watched was 14 hours long. Right. Yes. I watched Mariano Yanis's La Flor. Uh, it's an Argentinian film. It is the longest uh, film uh, to ever come from Argentina. Um, 14 hours is what everyone says. To be more specific, the actual runtime of the program is just under 13 and a half hours. Okay. There are six 15-minute intermissions, so okay. the actual time it takes to watch it sure. is actually 15 hours. So yeah. I think people just split the difference and say it's a 14-hour yeah. movie. But like I said, it's 13 hours and 28 minutes or something. Yeah. If you want to skip, even though the end credits are over picture, you could probably skip the end credits because they go on for 40 minutes. I was, uh, I was literally could, about you to could watch s- it under in under 12 hours. <laughs> I was literally about to say like, Hey, who's got the time to make those calculations? You know what? I think <laughs> if you're seeing this movie, you've got the time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this movie has been tearing up the festival, uh, circuit. It just played here, uh, at the Locarno in Los Angeles festival. And it is opening theatrically in New York on August 2nd. And I think, uh, what they're doing is they're splitting into the four parts. And I think for the first two weeks, they're only showing the first two parts or for first week, they're showing the first two parts. The second week, they're showing the second two parts. So it's going to take you a while. If you live in New York to see the whole thing, to see all 14 hours, 15 hours, whatever theatrically. But, uh, here's what I'm going to say. I would absolutely recommend you do so. If you can, if you have the time, sure. this movie, it, it's really gripping and maybe gripping is the right word. It's intoxicating. It's like, you sort of slide into it and you don't realize how much time is passing because it's so expertly made. And, um, it's, uh, so one thing, so obviously this conceit, I, I didn't tell you the conceit of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's six episodes. Okay. They are not of equal length. They run anywhere from only half an hour long to one that's nearly six hours long. Oh, wow. But, the way that it, and the, the the thing you have to see it's in the, the opening the director actually gives an explanation of where the title comes from is that you've got he draws a diagram you've got forced the first four episodes have a beginning and no end the fifth episode is a short story that has a beginning and an end the sixth episode is just the end of a movie you never see the beginning oh wow so and so he draws it like the four are the petals the one in the middle is the whatever the petals grow out of the bulb is that a thing and then the sixth one is the stem so it, it, it makes a flower when he draws yeah. the diagram anyway there is a name um, for that yeah <laughs> I, I mean of course there is um, it'd be weird if they they're like we never came we never got around to it <laughs> isn't that crazy uh so obviously that conceit is very artsy fartsy sure right it's very let's say esoteric to be yeah. whatever and I he, can't imagine a lot of people watching. You're like, this is like a flower. Like, <laughs> but yeah. But <clears throat> what surprised me almost immediately is that, especially in the first three episodes, which takes, which is most of the runtime, because the last two are only like an hour total. So it's uh, yeah, like thirteen ep- thirteen hours of just the first. Uh, no, the last, and then the fourth one. So the anyway, I'm getting off track. The majority of the runtime is the first three episodes, and they are super pulpy. <laughs> That's what I didn't know. Oh, wow. Okay. The first one has, is about a mummy's curse. The second one is like, on the one hand, it's like a half musical drama that takes place in the like r- world of like uh, professional singer songwriters. But it also involves an exclusive cult of rich people who inject 
the toxin of rare scorpions into their blood. <laughs> and then the third one, the one that, which is the one that's almost six hours long is a spy story. It takes place in the 1980s. And this is where I, I really get into what I think the movie, what I think Mario Yunus is getting into is that, um, the spy story is about four female spies in the 1980s on a mission. And we sort of learn the backstory of their mission and of the person who sent them the mission. And there's another, they get double crossed of course. And there's four more female spies and you learned their backstory, but then you also get flashbacks really long, almost, almost feature length in their own, in some cases, flashbacks of each of their backstories, how they came to be spies, how they came to be on this mission. And so it feels like Mariano Yunus is just, he doesn't want to stop telling the story. He doesn't want to get to an end because he's having so much fun telling the story. And, um, because it's nested just stories within stories within stories. Hmm. And then the fourth one is somewhat, somewhat meta in that it's about, he casts an actor as himself and, um, they're making the movie in the, Oh yeah. The other thing I didn't say is that all, with the exception of the fifth one, the short story, five of the six episodes all star the same four actresses. Mm. Um, and so the fourth episode is about this actor or this director and his sort of love hate relationship with these four actresses. No. <laughs> um, and then it goes into weird places where there's like a car in a tree and it keeps going into strange places. But what I think, and this is a lot of this might be me projecting my own personal philosophies of cinema onto the movie. But what I, one thing I really got out of it, is the idea that storytelling and narrative is one of the tools in the cinematic tool bag, but it is not necessarily what cinema is serving. Right. So you can, these movies can be these, these episodes, especially the first four that don't have endings, they can be super engrossing. And then they sort of get to like a big crescendo, a big reveal. Usually like a door opens and it's like <gasps> the music rises and then it's like, okay, end of episode three, <laughs> like we're on yeah. to the, uh, and it doesn't feel like it's a, it doesn't feel uh, adversarial. It doesn't feel antagonistic. It doesn't feel like he's fucking with you. No. It doesn't feel unsatisfying because the point is the telling of the story is an end in itself, whether or not the story ends, right? Just using cinema to tell stories and to see what stories do to you outside of following the structure. Yeah. Uh, it, I, I think that's what he's exploring and it, um, and it, uh, speaks a lot to Mariana uses, I think very, uh, it feels almost, uh, instinctual filmmaking prowess. Um, the movies are made, I mean, it took him like 10 years to make it. Um, and some of it has some great production design, but also a lot of it you can tell is made fairly cheaply, okay. but he really knows what he's doing with, with camera, with the editing, with the music. Uh, and there was at one point, like I think in the fifth episode where I was like, this is so beautiful. Like a part of me was like, what if he just made a conventional movie? And then I was like, why there's plenty of conventional movies. Yeah. Well, he could just keep making this cause his previous movie was four hours long. Okay. Maybe next one's 24 hours long. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. The four actresses are terrific and you sort of, um, I haven't written my review yet. I'll get into this more, I think in the review, but, um, I think the movie is also very much playing on the idea of your familiarity with actors and how it forms because like there's a part where it's like in the spy one where you're like, 
there's a bunch of people and you're like, oh, one of them's about to get killed. And you're subconsciously going, well, that one's probably going to get killed because she's not one of our four. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And right, so yeah, yeah. It's, it, I think the movie is making you aware of what you bring yeah. to a movie in terms of familiarity with with the actors and with the conventions. And uh, anyway, the movie, I, I feel like I'm kind of making it sound very academic, but it's also really, really emotional. Um, very, you know, stirring and swelling and exciting and often very funny. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's, I can't, I, I hope people, I hope that a nice disc comes out so people can watch. I'm, here's the thing. I feel like you and I, there's, so many great things that have come out of Battleship Pretension. <laughs> One of them is that we've tricked enough people into thinking that we're film critics that I got to watch LaFleur in the comfort of my own home. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope more people uh, get that uh, experience. Well, it's definitely critically acclaimed, and I think, honestly, the length of the film is getting the attention of, of certain and, audiences. And I, started, and I thought, like, is this... You know, I sat down, and I luckily Scott had seen it before me, and so he had uh, primed me for it being really good. Yeah. But a part of me was like, "Is this just? Is it just the length? Is that all people are talking about?" But no, right. it's really, really good. Um, and I will say, uh, and I know that we need to like move along, but I will say that um, I remember several years ago, somebody once described me as like the story and character guy. I thought you self-applied that. Uh, not really. Okay. No, it's. I never said that, but I think it was probably true uh, for a while. Um, the stuff I tended to talk most about was character, and then story was usually pretty secondary to that as well. And then I would talk about style. Almost invariably, my favorite films would have strong characters and strong stories, but the style increasingly would be there as well. And then as time has gone on, pro- probably as a function of doing this show and talking to you, um, story obviously the vast majority of movies are story driven or character driven. And so based on that, I feel perfectly fine saying for the type of movie this is, which is, you know, story driven, whatever it is, um, it could be better in, in this regard, but for, but for movies that are not that, uh, I'm, I'm thankful that I've gotten to a point and it's actually quite liberating gotten to a point where you don't, I don't require a movie to have a conventional story or conventional characters anymore. And but another thing, you know, uh, I read a recent interview with uh, Carlos Regatas, whose movie Our Time, uh, I think recently came out, or is about to come, I think it came out recently. Um, and he was talking about how, like, you don't, you don't have to choose, it's not like, either you tell a story or you don't. Right. But it's, do you tell it cinematically? And he kept ta- talking about certain movies. I tend to think of them as middle brown movies. He kept referring to them in this interview as illustrated literature. Hmm. Um, and basically accusing directors who make that kind of movie of not embracing what cinema is. Like yeah. you don't have to not tell a story. You can still tell a story, right. but tell it with sound and image over time. Don't yeah. just, as he says, illustrate literature. And that's, that's the thing is that, uh, in a way, I remember Citizen Kane, uh, the only Oscar it won was screenplay. And it's a very good script, and of course it's structured in, a, in an unconventional yeah. way. Uh, but the best movies are the ones, and I've said this before in various capacities, the best movies, the ones that really stick with you, are the ones where everything is so tied to everything else that you can't, it feels almost wrong as you're talking about it to specify one over the other. <laughs> like when I, if I were to, if I were to talk about citizen Kane, I think Wells so instinct was so instinctively thrilled at making movies yeah. that he's like, why on earth would I only, and he, it's like, 
I've done stage before. I've done radio before. I'm now doing this. And so I want to do this. And of course he had help with, from Greg Tolan, but like, um, Mm -hmm. why would I want to do this in a way that is only character and story? Like when I can do so much with it. Um, and so, yeah, the two are often tied together. Um, and, and it's one of those things it's, it's, it's been on my mind because as you know, the circles that I run in, I tend to, um, Anytime, not anytime, but most of the time that like a conservative commentator talks about a movie that they don't like, and and it happens with the Christians a lot as well, they tend to, like most people I would say, most average moviegoers, they tend to think in terms of story and character first, and and they'll say like, oh, this is the movie, like its story was all over the place, and it's like, okay, that's fine. Like I remember, you know, you and I are not big fans of uh, Ben Shapiro, certainly when it comes to talking about movies. But I remember he once he was talking about Hell or High Water, which is a movie that I like yeah, quite a bit. It's the only uh, movie by that writer that I <laughs> right. Yeah, what's his name? Taylor 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 Sheridan. Because there's also a Ty Sheridan. There is a Ty Sheridan. He's an actor, right? I think it's Taylor Sheridan. I think it's Taylor Sheridan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because uh, I didn't like Sicario yeah. or Sicario Two, and I didn't right. like uh, the one he directed, Wind, Wind River. Yeah. Wind River. Yeah. Hell or High Water is the one. I, I think Sicario like. works well from a directorial and an acting standpoint. And certainly, uh, I think the score is is wonderful and operatic and that kind of thing. But um, but anyway, so I remember Shapiro was talking about Hell or High Water, and he started comparing it, understandably so, to um, No Country for Old Men. And he said that he much preferred Hell or High Water because No Country for Old Men is like this thrilling, exciting, atmospheric movie. So it's like, all right, so he's praising No Country. But then he says, after a certain point, which is to say been 12 years after the death of Josh Brolin. Yeah. Uh, he says, he goes, then it just becomes weird. And we're following Tommy Lee Jones. He's having these conversations. I'm like, okay, well, yes, it's one thing to look at it as weird. It's another thing to say, okay, well, we've gotten to know Tommy Lee Jones. And now we're looking at the impact of what we've just seen on his character. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that the film has pivoted. It's just that it's a, it recontextualizes everything we've just seen. It's like, no, oh, I guess this is the movie rather than just say, but if you're thinking solely in terms of story, then yeah, it's a weird choice to keep everything going. But if you're thinking in terms of character and certainly in terms of theme or tone, then of course you keep going. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's something that I've been thinking about more and more is, is championing the idea that like, you certainly don't have to go with a conventional story and sometimes you don't have to go with a story at all. And when you abandon story, you wind up with something, a movie that I hated at the time, but you wind up with something like last year at Marion Bod, which is one of the most cinematic experiences that a person could ever have. Love it. All right. Uh, before we move on to your one, uh, I wanted to ask, cause you mentioned the screenplay of citizen Kane. Did you hear about David Fincher's new movie? No, or who knows movies get announced. Well, he's been associated with tons of stuff. Yeah. But apparently David Fincher is directing a Herman Mankiewicz biopic with Gary Oldman as Herman Mankiewicz. That could work. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in whatever David Fincher is doing. Talk about a director. I've done it. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned two in a row. Denis Villeneuve. I didn't mm. like Sicario. I didn't like, um, uh, you didn't Enemy. like prisoners. I uh, didn't like prisoners. And then I, lo- I loved arrival and I loved blade runner 2049. Yeah. And David Fincher is another one that I was either didn't like, or was on the fence about until Zodiac. I, and now I've gone back and sort of reappraised some of his older stuff. Here's the thing with his stuff. I, there's a lot I like about seven, a lot I love about the game. He's a director. I think that was obviously talented and then grew up 
Oh, yeah, that's okay. the way I look at it with Fincher. Maybe, yeah. Um, and yeah. then I think with Villeneuve, and I liked him more than you did, but I think he's a director that found his genre. I think his style fits sci-fi very, very well. Um, okay, okay. Uh, what did you watch? I saw the John Favreau directed Lion King, and it took me a while to For a realize. Second, I thought you were going to do a uh, uh, the Lights Camera Jackson Booksmart review. Did you see that? Do you know Lights Camera Jackson? I do, yes, but I don't. I did not see the Booksmart review. He basically said, "I was always told growing up, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything." And then he just stared at the camera for a minute. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. His entire review of Booksmart. Um, no, it's uh, okay. As I was watching the movie, so it is more so from my understanding than any of these other like Disney animation to quote unquote live action adaptations more so than any of those. This one sticks real close to the story. All right. Having seen the lion King many times, um, you know, all the beats and all the beats are there there. They don't add anything. Occasionally they will take an existing sequence and draw it out just a little bit. Okay. Maybe 45 more seconds and that's it. But that no, no new character. Sounds beats. like you're more familiar with the original Lion King than I am. It's been a long time since I've seen it. <laughs> I think of the, the story of the original Lion King is actually pretty simple. Okay. Um, so I don't necessarily know every single scene, but I do know all the beats. Um, and so, uh, and they don't really change it. And then the opening sequence of, of, you know, the circle of life where like all the animals are coming up, that's shot for shot. Um, and so that's going along and then the story happens and I'm like, okay, this is really close. And about 20 minutes in, I found myself wanting to yell at the screen. And what I wanted to yell was, who cares? <laughs> and that is not a, a thing I feel very often. It come, And so I'm like, okay, why did I want, why do I want to say that? And it's like, because this movie is so inherently inessential. It's so inherently pointless. And not just because it's telling us a story we already know. What it does is... The concept is so in, is so utterly flawed because it takes this animated film and it's like we can now make it look. I'm not going to say live action. The term I've used is photorealistic. Yeah, okay. We are now making it look photorealistic. It's like okay, that sounds like something you feel that you do because you want to see if you can. You don't build a whole movie around it. Yeah. <clears throat> well, they can do it. Good for them. And in doing so, they've stripped away the visual beauty. They've stripped away the charm. They've stripped, stripped away the personality of the characters of the world until finally it's this drab bleak there. Occasionally it Caleb Deschanel, uh, Deschanel is the uh, cinematographer. So it, it is beautiful in certain sections, but the rest of the time it's just like, okay, yeah, I, I'm, good job. You've made it look like these are actual lions. But unfortunately, you know, when you look at, uh, the original lion King and you look at what they're doing with scars face, you look at what they're doing with Mufasa's, the way he carries himself. Mm -hmm. Well, if you want to make it look like these are actual lions, then they're going to move like lions. They're not going to puff themselves up the way, like the way Mufasa did. They're not going to slink around the way scar does. Um, right. they're just going to look like lions and they're not going to make, and guess what? Their facial expressions are pretty blank. All right. When I look at my cat, Charlie, uh, aside from no, uh, I look at his pupils basically. And that's how I know what mood he's in. Uh, but beyond that, he doesn't give you much yeah. and good for them. I appreciate their commitment to realism, but in doing so, I don't know who these characters are. I don't connect with them for God's sake. Like, okay, this is something I was thinking about at the time. Um, 
I had rewatched the original Lion King like one or two years after my father passed away, and I'd seen it before. And the scene where Mufasa is dead and Simba saying, "Dad, wake up, we need to go home," mm. like, and it it got me. And I hadn't seen that scene for a long time. And once I realized this was going to be a shot-for-shot remake, I was like, that's coming up. Uh And I was kind of prepping myself for it. By the time it came, nothing. I had no reaction at all. I have no reaction to anything in this movie. It is... It's doing everything it can so that you don't have a reaction. The reaction you have is, wow, that looks real. And that's impressive on a certain level. And what's the runtime? Too long? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it there's felt no way like that... 16 hours to me. <laughs> just just longer than the floor, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, it's... Yeah, because that, that feeling impressed by the how long it looks for real. You said, yeah, you said about 20 minutes. That sounds like, yeah, 15, 20 That's minutes. That's about, about it. Long. Yeah. And, and what's more is like, there are sequences that you're like, okay, well, you realize early on that they are stripping it of some of its magic. I think of two musical sequences in the original film that really stand out. One is, I just can't wait to be the king where Simba, it's a really upbeat song and all these animals are singing and dancing with him. It's very colorful. It's like well choreographed and it's a really joyous Song uh-huh. here, the anim- the other animals are kind of dancing along and all that, but it just doesn't have the life to it. And then Scar's song, "Be Prepared," in the original, they do all kinds of things things with color. Mm-hmm. They make they have it be this very sickly kind of green, which then gives way to this very vibrant red. And then like these, these uh, sharp cliffs are like jutting out. And then they have this moment where like the hyena scars up on a cliff and the hyenas are essentially goose stepping below, below him. And it all oh, looks right. extremely stylized, very Nuremberg esque this. Well, they're not going to do that with the color because it's unmotivated. And this needs to be realistic, damn it. And in doing so, oh, they strip the scene. Uh, one of the most, uh, power, one of the most powerful like villain songs of any Disney movie, and they completely deflate it. It is a film that is so pointless. <laughs> I, I, like, I love it's, how mad you are. I, it's, it's so frustrating to me. Like, <clears throat> I didn't see Aladdin, but I get Aladdin. Be- on, on a few levels. One of them is that this is a story that takes place in, albeit the fictional uh, kingdom of Agrabah, but it's Middle East. It's uh-huh. meant to be the Middle East. But the, and and despite the the you know coloring of the characters in the original, they're voiced by white actors. And so like okay, well let's and same with Mulan. I just saw the trailer for Mulan. Looks pretty good. And it's and it's this idea like we're going to actually give these characters their due by casting like actors of that race. So I understand that a little bit with with Beauty and the Beast. I understand like it's this magical kingdom. So we want to see what that magic would look like in real life. So they're steering into the style. This, by its very nature, the more realistic they go, the less interesting it will become. Yeah. And it really is such a misfire on every level. And man, with one or two exceptions, which is on those rare occasions when Jon Favreau goes a little bit beyond and expands those those sequences, you can see the Jon Favreau you know, the enthusiastic Jon Favreau. And then a couple of the, a couple of the, the the ad-libbed lines from like Billy Eichner and John Oliver and Seth Rogen, those work pretty well from a comic relief standpoint. But for the most part, uh, it has been a long time since I've been this 
angry at a movie <laughs> and it's weird. I've seen worse movies, but you know what I mean? Like there's just something about sure, yeah. it is so inessential. It's so inessential. I went with yeah. my friend, my friend uh, named his name is also Tyler. I wasn't talking to myself and he said, what did you think? And I was like, I can't decide which word to use first pointless or worthless. <laughs> so oh, I'll, uh, I'll use them you, both. You mentioned, yeah, these, uh, I haven't seen all these live action ones. The one I really liked that I saw was Cinderella. Cinderella is great. A lot. Um, and that's long enough ago that it, four, four years ago. Yeah. It, it, I mean, admittedly, there was Alice in Wonderland, but that was kind of it's vaguely inspired by the source material as well. Whereas, like, Cinderella, it's almost like they were going with the basic story beats, but they didn't, they felt like, well, we're doing something different now, so let's do something different. Yeah. You know, with d- character development uh, and that sort of thing. So that one, it felt like they were just, it was a fun riff, but they it also allowed them to do something deeper with the themes. Yeah. Whereas these new films, it didn't feel like it was exploiting nostalgia. These yeah. new films definitely feel that. And this one more so than any of the others, precisely because it's hewing so close to the source material and in doing so strangling the life out of it. Um, I'm cautiously looking forward to Mulan though, because I like Nikki Caro as a director. Yeah. And she has worked well <laughs> in the live action Disney mold before she made the underrated McFarland USA. Okay. Uh, Kevin Costner, which I really liked. Um, so I'm, yeah, cautiously looking forward to. I, think I wish I could be looking forward to The Little Mermaid, but it's Rob Marshall. And even though I liked Mary Poppins Returns, I just yeah. don't trust Rob Marshall. Well, and see, and Little Mermaid is one that it's like that one I can also see being a fun live action thing, partially because we're seeing humans, uh, or at least half humans. Um, but also by creating this underwater kingdom, you can create a sense of wonder. Whereas again, Lion King, all you're doing is taking away the wonder. Well, speaking of a kingdom of water, I watched a documentary called Aquarella. Okay. Uh, and it was astounding. Jane Fonda. Uh, (laughs) that is a dumb joke. I'm sorry. Uh, astounding, overpowering, also terrifying and depressing. Um, uh, harrowing, I think I would call it. I really, really loved it. It's um, a movie. It, it has no narrative. It has almost no dialogue except for what you sort of overhear uh, in certain places. Um, but basically, for a few years, uh, the the filmmaker and I'm forgetting his name. It's something <coughs> Nivakovsky, Victor Kosakovsky, um, just sort of followed water in massive forms Hmm. he starts with like glaciers actually starts no the the, yeah this is why the movie is upsetting as as beautiful as it is it's uh, upsetting from the very beginning he starts and he never tells you what part of the world this is i don't i didn't look it up i don't know where this is but uh a part of the world where there's uh during the colder months there's a lake that freezes over and people use it as a road they can drive across it Hmm. well again there's no dialogue there's no text on screen there's no narration all of this anything i'm saying about the what's happening here i'm inferring but um because of changes in climate the ice is getting thinner a little bit earlier so people keep falling like Ugh. cars keep going in and so the he the first long section of the movie he follows around this team of rescuers people who rescue people uh and you see them pull a couple out people who have who managed to get out of the car and then you see a third one with it starts the cameras all, all, way on the other side of the lake and you just see this car driving and then you just see it go 
just into the water. And then it catches, <laughs> it cuts to the rescuers pulling people out and they pull two people out and the people are distraught because there was a third person in the car and he's not there. And then they see his body under the ice. Um, horrifying. And then it goes from there to melting glaciers and big parts of, uh, icebergs and glaciers falling into the, into the sea. And then it follows that through, um, uh, hurricanes and flooding in major cities and yeah. you see like uh, uh, mountain rivers and streams and the uh, what's that I mean I'm sure there's a couple in the world but those waterfalls that are so high that the water doesn't actually like it just sort of disappears into the clouds and then oh, mist, you know yeah. you see that sort of stuff and so it's like yeah 90 minutes of just images and some dialogue that you over overhear people say uh, but it's absolutely beautiful and also it's so clearly motivated by global warming and the changing sure. climate and the melting of the polar ice caps and these sort of things, that it's also very um, disturbing. What I haven't mentioned is that the movie was shot entirely at 96 frames per second. I saw it projected, and apparently most pe- most places where it would be possible, it would be projected at 48 frames per second. Mm-hmm. It's the first time I've seen... I think it's the first time I've seen a, a, a high frame rate feature that wasn't 3D. Yeah, um, and it's immediately uh, uh, immediately noticeable, and it and it really works well. I mean, you know, I think some of the high frame rate stuff for fiction for dramatized stuff right. makes it look a little faky. In this case, when you're just seeing, you know water flowing and ice getting kicked up and this sort of stuff. Does it's, it make you wish it was in 3D? Uh, no, I didn't think... I wonder what that would have been like. Yeah. Uh, it's also mixed in Dolby Atmos, which the um, the screening room I was at was uh, was was outfitted with um, uh, 30-something cameras or, or, or speakers. I'm not sure. I asked... I went into the projection afterwards, and I was like, so that was 48 frames? And then he was like, yeah, no, Atmos. And I was like, how many speakers? And I think he was getting sick of me asking questions. But I wanted to know uh, what I had experienced. But, um, yeah, Aquarella, really, really powerful stuff. It sounds great. Yeah. And then finally, last thing I watched, and I know this is a movie that you love, Mm -hmm. and that is um, Paul Lenny's 1928, The Man Who Laughs. Yeah. And holy shit, this movie is great. Yeah. Um, It's uh, the... It's so sad that Paul Lenny died. He made was this his last? He made one after this. Or his it's, last I don't remember if it's last or second to last. But, but he died the next year. He died in nineteen twenty nine, yeah. and um, the and I obviously just, I'm not the first person to point out. That you've certainly talked about it a lot. That sort of uh, um, we had an extra mic on there. Uh, uh, probably didn't sound weird. Probably not. I don't know. Might have been an echo. Anyway, um, anyway, uh, you've talked about it before uh, that sort of where silent film was right at the edge of the sound era yeah. was a, a really astounding place that kind of got thrown off track or knocked back, um, by the introduction of, uh, of sound. And, uh, this movie is so, so assured in its, um, in its lighting, in its, uh, production design and its framing. Yeah. Um, there are, there's, there's the beginning of the movie. I mean, I obviously I know I'm not dumb enough to think that just because things are older that they're safer. But the beginning of the movie, you've got a man tauntingly being told that his child has been disfigured by uh, gypsies, essentially. Yeah. And then as he's in torment over what happened to his child, he's killed in an Iron Maiden. And then we see this disfigured child abandoned on a snowy shore. And then he walks into 
uh, essentially a field of gallows of rotting corpses swinging from the gallows finds at the foot of one of these gallows a woman frozen to death clutching her baby yeah. who is still barely hanging on to life and the boy takes the baby and nurses it back to life we're seven minutes into this movie yeah. and we've just seen three or four <laughs> horrid thing, like horrifying things yeah. in a row and the movie it makes it bowls you over it is it is so bold so macabre and also so sweet and heartfelt so much pathos it's the part there's a part because uh, uh the boy who the man who laughs uh, played by conrad Wright, had his uh, permanent grin carved onto his face uh grows up to be a traveling clown and there's a part i'm almost gonna get emotional talking about it where is there any uh no it's the part when everyone the, uh, the rest of the performers think he's dead hmm. and to keep the woman who loves him who's blind Right. from knowing that he's dead, they pretend to do the whole show and pretend to be the audience shouting, right. like, bring on his name's, uh, Gwynplaine, Gwynplaine. And so they're shouting like, bring on, yay, Gwynplaine or whatever. And they're all doing this. Yeah. It's this entire group of clowns putting on this show to keep this, keep from yeah. breaking this woman's heart. The man she loves, uh, has died. It's so emotional. Uh, and what it's, an incredible movie. And it's that, you know, the part that I thought you were going to say was, um, a really wonderful bit of acting by Conrad Veidt, who previously several, several years before had played Cesar in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And then he would go on to play major Strasser and Casablanca. Like mm-hmm. those are kind of the roles he's most known for. Um, you know, essentially one role is mostly blank, not to imply he's doing a bad job, but just like Cesar, the whole point is that he's not showing anything. And then Major Strasser is just kind of a standard heavy. Uh, and the idea that, that Gwynplaine is just, you know, he's very much like Quasimodo in that regard. Um, this idea that he's disfigured and he's seen as a monster, but he is he has such a good heart and there's this wonderful moment where, and so that's the thing is so throughout he has this giant creepy looking grin on his face. And if you're not careful, that's, that's all you're going to look at. But if you look at his eyes, like they're just roiling with emotion and there's this moment where he, I don't remember if he's doing it for another person or he's just kind of doing it for our benefit where he covers up his mouth so that you, so that we are looking at his eyes first and we see that he's basically crying. And it's this realization that like, if he were to take that away, if he were to take his hand away, we would not, we might not even know he's crying because we're looking at the whole picture here, here being dominated by this disfigurement. And it just, you know, it reminds me a lot of Todd Browning's freaks as well. Um, that obviously we judge a book by its cover, but it's also this idea that when we look at other people, whether they are disfigured or not, um, our tendency is to look at what is wrong with them. Look at where they fall short. And, and in doing so, it's not merely that we're missing the other parts of them, but we are also not paying attention to how they might be feeling. And so in that wonderful shot, um, it is, it is uh, the director and the actor saying like, yeah, it's not just that you're not seeing the whole person, but you're not seeing the, the tremendous pain that I'm going through. Um, even if you don't have a problem with his, this garish grin, you're still seeing that first before the very real human emotion underneath. And from a, from an expressionist standpoint, the film stands apart from the others because, you know, 
one of the elements of expressionism is what's on the inside is on the outside. So if a mm-hmm. character is ugly, it's because they are a, oh, a right. bad person. With Gwynplaine, it's very much the opposite. It's that this has been foisted upon him and he could have steered into it he could have been bitter but he's not he chooses to be a good person and continue to be a good person and so that's one of the that's one of the really perverse things about the film historically yeah. is that the design of Gwynplaine and I will talk about this again in a couple days uh, <laughs> the design of Gwynplaine was the inspiration for the Joker who is a full on villain yeah. and, when, and whenever somebody looks at like a poster for the man who laughs. He looks like, um, he, it looks like, you know, was it London after midnight? That, like that Lon Chaney, okay. uh, lost film where he's got like the weird creepy teeth and all that. So he looks like any other German expressionistic monster, but in actuality, he is the hero and, yeah. and you're totally on his side. Yeah. It is a beautiful film, but one that does not shy away from the darker elements yeah. of expressionism. I, I'm so glad you saw it. It's, it's incredible. Uh, and yeah, Flickr Alley just put out the Blu-ray. I'll be mm. reviewing it this week. Uh, pro- probably by the time you're hearing No, this is going on tonight. So not by the time you're right. hearing this. Um, <clears throat> couple other things just little notes to mention about the man who laughs uh speaking of laughing i'm apparently an 11 year old boy who laughs because i couldn't get over the fact the dog's name is homo i know, <laughs> I know. so anytime the title it's, card would be like where are you going homo i yeah, laugh it's hard not uh, to think of the jerk like come on yeah. shithead like yeah. it's it reminded me of that i'm like oh boy that's too bad um and then uh <laughs> also uh note that the queen josephine crowell of uh, intolerance and birth right. of a nation is playing the same role that Olivia Coleman just played in the favorite. Oh, the same queen. <laughs> I don't think I, I, I saw the film. I've, I've seen the film twice and it's been years since I saw it. And so, yeah, I was not, that queen was not on my mind at the time. So I was, I don't think I realized that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I, I just, I, I just, cause there's a whole, there's a whole part of the story that you would have to know this particular, like 1600s and early 1700s English royalty story that I happen to know because I'm fascinated by it but the we haven't even talked about the the two uh, nobles mm-hmm. the, or the the noble woman and right. her betrothed or whatever because uh, she lives and because Gwynplaine's father was a noble who was uh, exiled and then killed um, and so the woman who took over had her lands granted to her by James II mm-hmm. and Queen Anne James II was overthrown by William of Orange and then Queen Anne followed William of Orange so the whole thing about Queen Anne hating this woman and kind of wanting to give, uh, to fuck with her or give her lands back probably has to do with the fact that her lands were granted to her by someone that, you know, uh, that she didn't, the Queen Anne probably doesn't recognize as rightful King. Right. Not something that's in the text of the movie at all, but because I find the glorious revolution when William of Orange showed up and said, Hey, James, II. Uh, I'm the king. And James II said, you know what? <laughs> Take it. <laughs> and just fucked off to France. And then, of course, did, uh, you know, enough uh, French crypto-Catholic Swiss were in his ear that he did end up trying to take it back, and that's the war that is ongoing in the favorite. Oh, anyway, all right. I, uh, Thank you for that. This is just a weird bit of history that I tend to find fascinating, and so I, I'm glad there's... I keep seeing movies set during it. By the way, one of my favorite things about you is when you paraphrase what people might have said. <laughs> All right. I think I talked about this either earlier this episode or in the episode coming up. Oh, with the return um, of Martin Gary. Yeah, that that's was right. it. That was yeah, that's right. Episode. Just yeah. like, it's like, Hey, you're, uh, I'm Martin Gary. He's like, no, you're not. And then here it's, Hey, uh, 
I'm going to be the king now. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. I just, I wish, it's, uh, it's like that old uh, Mr. Show bit where uh, th- uh, Bob Odenkirk plays like their old drama teacher uh-huh. or, so- or some- something like that. And a guy who just, he has no patience for like the pretension of actors. And so, uh, and he says like, acting is not that hard. You just go, I'm the king. I'm mad. <laughs> yeah. I want the news from my kingdom. But then like, there's a whole like mini play where everybody acts in that way. So <laughs> yeah. our friend Paul of Tompkins comes up and all he goes, all he does is say, look at the big actor. Look at the big actor on the stage. I yell the loudest. Look at me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, there's so many great Paul of Tompkins lines from Mr. Show. I think one of my favorite is, uh, Yeah, it's crack. It gets you really high.